J.P. Morgan empties the piggy bank, and is Berkshire Hathaway still a buy? You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show, folks. I am David Hansen, joined once again by Morgan Hassel. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back. We are going to start off, as we always do, with the headlines. The first one is from the Wall Street Journal. And, of course, the big news from the weekend, J.P. Morgan. Record packed is on the table, but J.P. Morgan faces fight. So this is, of course, referring to the tentative $13 billion fine that they have agreed to. When's the last time you paid a $13 billion fine? It's been a while. I got some parking tickets uh, when they I was in college up. parking on the street, but uh, that's, that, that's pretty big. This is the largest fine that any company in U.S. history has really faced. And, and, and one thing that I think is interesting about this, you and I were talking about this earlier, a lot of this fine is attached uh, to Bear Stearns with J.P. Mm-hmm. Morgan bought in 2008. And J.P. Morgan buying Bear Stearns in 2008 was really good for the economy at the time. If Bear Stearns had imploded, which was March 2008, it very likely would have been like Lehman Brothers was that September, where right. it, it was really a shock to the, to the global financial system. So J.P. Morgan really did the, the, the economy and the financial system uh, a, a, a big benefit mm-hmm. by buying Bear Stearns, and now it's taking this massive penalty for doing it. So it's, it's sort of interesting there. I think one other thing... Warren Buffett brought this up the other day. If you put thousands of SEC lawyers trained on one company and say, go find what they did wrong, they're going to find mm-hmm. something wrong. You get chased by cops all day. They're going to find you for something eventually. Right. So I, I, I have a little bit of sympathy for J.P. Morgan uh, with this fine right now. What's your take? A little bit of sympathy, uh, I, would, I would probably agree. When you talk about the Bear Stearns, the, I think it was $4 billion part of the settlement is going to the FHFA, which is the conservator of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Yeah. So we have to look at this from, from a couple, di- couple different ways. This, is, this part of the settlement is referring to mortgage-backed securities that the bank sold to those companies. Yeah. So this is different from uh, Bear Stearns or probably Washington Mutual or uh, J.P. Morgan actually selling loans for them to securitize. This is them actually selling already securitized loans. So it's yep. a little bit of a different story, which is also why Bank of America is in the headlines saying they might be next facing these things with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. There's people who say, hey, what, what the heck? I thought we already settled with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Right. That was over loans that Countrywide and Bank of America had sold to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. This is addressing mortgage-backed securities that were sold. So it's all kind of a, a mixture of, of badness, I guess, from, from pre-crisis stuff. But I agree with you. It's, you feel a little bit of sympathy for them. Not, not a whole lot. I, mean, I, think, I think the bank is still going to make over $18 billion right. this year, potentially. Right, so it's all Morgan. relative. Really interesting about these fees, though, is that they don't, ne- or these fines, they don't necessarily exonerate the bank from facing criminal charges mm-hmm. related to it. So it's, it, it's kind of interesting to think, what are these fees really doing? If you're not exonerating future criminal charges, mm-hmm. what does it do? It's like you're, you're going to jail for doing something, but it doesn't, it, it, that, that doesn't prevent you from being charged for that same mm-hmm. crime again. So this, this is probably going to be a, a never-ending story with fees mm-hmm. with these banks. You know, we're five years past the crisis, and we're just now getting to the point where we're really seeing some, some teeth bitten into these mm-hmm. banks. All right, moving on to the next headline. This one, was, this one was from Friday, but we're going to pull it today. It says, Weekend Reading, Take the Wall Street Earnings Quiz. And this is from DealBook. And they pulled out some quotes from some of the bank's earnings releases. And it was a quiz. You read the quote, and you're supposed to guess which bank said this quote. So I'm going to ask you, All right. which bank last week said, quote, this was the best third quarter that wealth management has had ever. I said that. I'll say I, I don't know the answers before, but I'm going to guess it's Morgan Stanley. You're wrong. Okay. Well, that, yeah. that proves that I don't know the answers. There you okay, go. So well, 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 give, me, give me a rationale for Morgan Stanley real quick. Why would you think that they'd be performing well? 
Well, they've, they've, no, they've, that, that has been a, a key spot that James mm-hmm. Gorman has doubled down on in the last couple of years, so I, I, I figured that would be. The correct answer is actually Bank of America, okay. the Merrill Lynch unit, which is, when we go back to the acquisition, obviously the price paid for Merrill Lynch was pretty steep. Yep. It, was, it was not a bargain price. This is not a Bear Stearns price that they got uh, for Merrill Lynch, but when you look at the continuing operations, the wealth management business is still doing quite well. It's a, it's a fee-based business. Assets are under management are strong, so... Bank of America, strong wealth management. It's, it's really good, I think, to see Wall Street banks moving in the direction of trading other people's money to actually helping clients mm-hmm. with their money, meeting their long-term goals. That seems to be a positive uh, direction for Wall Street banks to move in. Right. The next quote was, weak mortgage banking clearly stole the show. That said, they were able to continue their consecutive earnings growth. Which bank is that? Uh, I'd say that has to be Wells Fargo. It is Wells Fargo. Uh, you know, Wells Fargo, along with J.P. Morgan, really have a stranglehold on, on the mortgage market. Mm-hmm. That was a boon for the last couple of years when, when refi was really doing well. Refi has really plunged now that interest rates have gone up. Uh, and, of course, J.P. Morgan reported a loss last week because of, it, because of its legal yes, settlement. So that leaves Wells Fargo. And I think it's important to say about Wells Fargo, everyone talks about the refi. It's been great for Wells Fargo. But you have to put it in perspective. When the Wells Fargo mortgage banking business was booming, it made up around 12%, 13% of revenue. Right. Historically, it's only been around 8%. So just because it's falling doesn't mean Wells Fargo is going to fall off a cliff. It's just going to revert back to the mean a little bit. It's falling from an artificially high high. Exactly. All right, moving on to the last headline. This is something that you pointed to in, in one of your articles on Friday. This is from Investment News. Average 401k account balances nearly double since the crisis. Morgan, I thought... I thought the narrative was that no one believed in stocks anymore and that nobody was putting money in 401ks anymore. Yeah, it's really interesting. We saw lots of stories over the last couple of years about how investors were abandoning stocks and going to bonds. If you, and they had lots of anecdotes about, you know, Susie Q has, has, has left stocks. Scared of the stock market. One, re- one interesting statistic that, uh, that Vanguard pointed out several years ago is that during the financial crisis, 97% of their clients made no changes to their allocation. 97%. So we hear a lot about the 3% that mm-hmm. has abandoned stocks. Most most investors really didn't do anything. So they've enjoyed the stock uh, rally over the last couple of years, and now 401k balances are at an all-time high. They're still fairly low. You can see from that statistic, it's still less than 100000 mm-hmm. uh, which might sound like a lot of money to some people, but when you're talking about trying to retire for 20 or 15 or 20 years, that's that's not going to do you much good. And when I, when I saw the headline, I mentioned this to you before. This reminded me of an article that you wrote earlier in the year, yep. which was titled, The Biggest Retirement Myth Ever Told. Right. And that was that everyone thinks that, that we're, we have this looming retirement crisis and that everything looks so bad for the people that are aging and the retirement outlook is just totally grim. Yeah. But you went back and looked. It's kind of always been that way, right? It's, it's always, always getting better. It's always been the case. Mm-hmm. You can easily make the case now that most, uh, most workers that are approaching retirement are not prepared to retire. That's mm-hmm. true. You can easily make that case. I just went back and showed that that has always been the case. Mm-hmm. And the fact that if you look at today, we are probably more prepared than we have ever been. We're still not totally prepared, but we are more prepared than we've ever been. And it wasn't that long ago, the 1950s, 1940s, and before that, that most men over age 65 were still working. They worked until they died. So the concept of retirement in general is really unique to just the past couple of decades. And to me, the most meaningful statistic in this is the percentage of senior citizens that are technically in poverty. Mm-hmm. That rate has plunged over the last 100 years. It's, con- it's consistently plunged. Mm-hmm. So senior citizens financially are doing better now than they ever have before. 
But how, how often do you hear about retirement crisis not prepared? You see it all right. the time. And, so. and one of my favorite, I don't remember the exact numbers, was people always point to, well, back then everyone had cushy pensions and you didn't have to do anything. Right. But I think you actually pointed out that the amount of pensions were, was actually increasing, I think, into the 90s and maybe even into the 2000s. I'm not exactly sure. Right. I mean, so, so during the peak mm-hmm. uh, of, of our pension era in the 1970s, 1980s, about, about about one in four uh, retirees mm-hmm. had a pension. It's a little bit less than that today. But people who have pensions today actually earn more money from those pensions than they did back then. Mm-hmm. So that the the proportion of retirement income that is from a private pension today is higher now than it was back in the 70s. So, so one in four, I think most people look back and think it was more like five in four back then. Everybody had People that thought that everyone had. That really wasn't the case. Most, you know, and, and what it comes down to is that people are going to rely on Social Security going forward. But they've been relying on Social Security for decades. Mm-hmm. So, Same story, different year. Yep. All right, moving on to the next segment, taking a little bit of a deeper dive on a company that we talk about a lot, a guy we talk about a lot, and that's Berkshire Hathaway yep. and Warren Buffett. Uh, you've been on the program a couple times the last couple of weeks, and we've gone back to the point that you own a lot of index funds, you own a couple of stocks that, that you really believe in for the long term, and Berkshire Hathaway is one of those stocks. Yep. And when you look across the investment landscape today, I think people look at Berkshire and say, Great business, obviously great CEO and capital allocator there. But it doesn't look dirt cheap. It looks kind of fairly valued. Yeah. Not that great of a buy today. Do you agree with that? I I don't necessarily agree with that. And I think a lot of people, when they're going against Berkshire, making the bear case for Berkshire, mm-hmm. they say, look, it's not going to earn as high returns going forward as it did in the past. Right. Buffett's going to die eventually, blah, blah, blah. Those are all true, but I still think it, it makes a very attractive investment. So, no, Berkshire is not going to earn 25% a year going forward. Mm-hmm. Maybe it earns 12% or 10% or 8%. That would, that's, that's still pretty good mm-hmm. going forward. I can think of worse investments to make right. than 10 or 12% a year. Mm-hmm. And sure, Buffett's not going to be around forever, but the companies that he has accumulated, the assets he's accumulated over the last 50 years will not go away when, when Buffett goes away. Mm-hmm. Berkshire's still going to own Geico and General Re and Coke and Burlington Northerns and some great companies. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I really look at it as sort of a supercharged index fund. It's an index fund that has sort of gone out of its way to get the bad companies out of the mm-hmm. mix and really focus on a very diverse set of high-quality businesses. And it's, it's, it's certainly an investment that I plan on opening for years and decades to come. All right. Well, my one my question with Berkshire is people point to the price to book value multiple because when we look at Berkshire as a business, this isn't one that you that you value on earnings because so much of it is tied into the investments underlying. It's better to look yeah. at book value. Yeah. So if we look at a graph of price to book value, and we have a picture of that for those of you listening, sorry, but uh, price to book value is currently right under where it has been the last twenty years from a median perspective. So you could make the argument that that multiple is undervalued by historical standards. But the reason I I would be hesitant to do that is because if you go back and look at kind of how Berkshire does make, I just said you don't want to look at the earnings, but if we go back and look at how do they make the operating earnings, back in 2004, insurance and investment income made up around 57% of operating income, 57%. Today, that's down to 30%. So my question is, it's not necessarily a statement saying this is wrong, this is right. But going from 57% down to 30%, the reason is the businesses like the railroad business, the energy business, those have made up an increasingly large portion of the earnings. So my question is, maybe 
book value, you can't look at it historically because the business has changed so much. Yeah, I think, Is that fair? Yeah, I think just looking at book, at book value and using that as the only reason you're investing uh, in a company like Berkshire is, is a faulty approach. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's the best proxy that we have to value the company without getting into a really deep, elaborate model that's, mm-hmm. that's looking at how Berkshire earns money. Uh, and, you know, at, at 1.4 times book right now going forward, even if there's no book value expansion, say it stays at 1.4 forever, mm-hmm. well, you still have the assets that are earning, right. you know, 10 12% a year on, on books. And that would still make it a very good investment. I think mm-hmm. the odds are pretty decent that you'll see some book value expansion, price-to-book value expansion, right. I should say, going forward, which, which just supercharges the return that you're going to earn on the assets that Berkshire is, is earning and the dividends that those throw off to the company. Yeah, the, the one thing that I would absolutely agree with you is the people that say it's too big, it can't grow anymore. If you go back and look at past quotes, people yeah. have been saying this for decades. But Buffett the himself, the, the, the first time that Buffett said that himself about Berkshire was, I think, 1983. Mm-hmm. He's been saying it ever since, and the company has done quite well ever since. Absolutely. So. All right, moving on to the final segment of the day on the Twitter sphere, looking at our first tweet from Mr. Eddie. Elfenbein. He says, for the last six months in a row, the U.S. has outproduced Saudi Arabia in petroleum. Shale, FTW. FTW is for the win. Of course it's for the win. Uh, So this is a financial show. Why are we talking about petroleum? What's going on here? Well, it's incredible, uh, the oil revolution that America has had over the last couple years. I think we've been so preoccupied with other things going on in the economy, with the Great Recession and housing and banks and whatnot, that Mm -hmm. a lot of people have really missed how sensational oil production has done over the last couple it's years. It's not fun to talk about good things, though. We only like to talk about the bad things. That's, that's, that's very true. <laughs> but there are a lot of good things going on right now, and I think the oil revolution is, is really one of them. Just since early 2010, oil production in the United States is up 50%. We're now a net exporter of petroleum products like diesel and gasoline for the first time since World War II. And this has a lot of uh, benefits on the mm-hmm. economy. For one, it makes the, the world oil market, market much more stable. So in years past, whenever there was some sort of geopolitical tension in the Middle East or in Africa, you saw oil prices spike immediately, spike a lot, and that transferred down to gasoline prices and hurt the economy. For the past couple of years, the last two years, there's been a lot of mm-hmm. geopolitic uh, you know, woes in the Middle East and in right. Africa. What, what have oil prices done? Not, Not much. much. <laughs> They've been much more stable. And a lot of commodity hedge funds now that trade oil are going out of business because there's so little volatility mm-hmm. in oil right now. So that's really good. It's also great for the nation's uh, trade balance. We used to import a lot of oil, particularly from the Middle East and South America. A lot of the countries that didn't particularly like us, mm-hmm. we were very reliant on them for oil. Well, that reliance is, is declining dramatically. Uh, that's good for our trade deficit. It's good for geopolitics overall. So it's going to be really interesting to see how far this oil boom takes us over the next five or ten years. I'm, I'm very bullish on it. Like I said, no one, no one likes to hear this good news. We only like to focus on the bad stuff. That's right. It's sad but true. All right, moving on to the next tweet from Shane Parrish. It's a quote says, the key to eternal happiness is low overhead and no debt. Morgan, I have very low overhead and no debt. I don't own a house. So do I have eternal happiness? And the quote is from Linda Berry, I should say. She's a cartoonist, I believe, I believe right? So, yeah. You, you, you seem pretty happy to me, too. Um, it's, it's Monday, but I'm pretty happy. Not, not much more needs to be expanded on that. I, I think for a lot of people, it's, uh, it's, it's, it, it stands by itself. So do you think that quote, if it applies to people, low overhead, low debt, 
Do you think the same applies I think it's, to businesses? I think it's absolutely true. I think debt, take, debt takes options away from you. Mm-hmm. Debt makes it so that someone else can dictate your future, whereas low overhead and no debt really puts uh, control in your hands mm-hmm. about how you're going to react to different events in the future. Right, and, and you wrote an article recently about how to use, ca- how to use cash and the value of cash. People right. look at it and say, well, it's not going to keep up with the value of inflation. It's right. worthless. It's terrible. But you have to take into account the optionality of that of that cash. Right. What There's, you can do with it. Cash has optionality in that it gives you options in the future, and that you know one dollar today is mm-hmm. going to be worth one dollar nominally five and ten right. years from now, where other assets don't. So that optionality really lets you take advantage of things in the future, things that you can't see today, mm-hmm. like uh, losing your job in the future, or getting sick in the future, or stock market crash in the future. There's a value that cash has that other assets don't. Absolutely. All right. Moving on to the last tweet from Carl Richards. He says. Is the market volatile if you don't watch it? Parentheses. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hear it, does it make a sound? This is what I'm interested in asking. When Matt Matt Copenhaver, my normal co-host, he's been in Africa for two weeks. I just want to pick his brain and see, did you even think about the market was going up and down? I think that, that hits right on Matt's situation. There. And during the last month, you know, we had the, the, the government shutdown earlier this month. Stocks were very volatile. When the government was shut down, but from start to finish, it really didn't do much. Right. The market today is about where it was a month ago. You know, all the headline writers, all the news writers could have just gone to the beach for the last month. Mm-hmm. Nothing has happened start to finish. We've gone right. nowhere. Uh, so, so to answer Carl's question, I, I think the answer is no. If, if you know, it, it, you know, is the stock market volatile if you don't watch it? No, it's not. And I think more people should watch it less than they do. All right. Well, thanks for being here, Morgan. We appreciate it. Matt Kopenheffer will be back here tomorrow. I promise that. He made it back from Africa, so we'll have normal programming going forward. You can find us on Twitter. We are at TMF Financials. You can tweet your questions, comments, and we'll address them right here on the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching.